Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Awesome. Well, hands up here who has ever been to a funeral. All right, and keep your hand up if you've ever been to an Italian funeral. All right, some of you may understand what I'm about to say, but my mum's side of the family, um, we are part Italian. I know we don't look it, we come from North Italy, but as you get closer to us, you start to see the passion and then the emotions and then the intensity and even the little hand gestures come out every now and then. (laughs) And we don't really follow Italian tradition, but for whatever reason, we do when it comes to funerals. And so at my papa's funeral, we did what we call a um, funeral procession. So once the ceremony is over, we walk in the middle of the road all the way to the burial site. And it was 50 degree heat on this day and we were all in heels and I whispered to mum and I was like, why are we walking? Why aren't we driving? And she said, Rebecca, we walk. Rain, hail or shine, we walk because this is what we do. And I'm thinking, since when are we actually Italian? But then we also have this... um, tradition where we have an open casket or a viewing, which some of you may have heard about, and we're encouraged to kiss or lay hands on the body. And this is the least favourite part of funerals for myself. I don't do very well with dead bodies, and I don't know anyone that does, but not so much emotionally, but just physically, it makes me feel a little bit weird. And my cousin came into the room with me, and she was studying biology at the time. And she was like, I just want to see what it looks like if we open Papa's eye. And I was like, no, 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 don't touch the body. I'm like, Ingrid, stay away from the casket. Like, you're not to go anywhere near it. And what does she do? She goes over it and she just opens Papa's eye. And so he's lying there and his eyes open and I saw it and I cannot get the picture out of my mind. It was like frosted over. It was clear. I was so annoyed at her. My goodness, was I annoyed at her. But one final tradition we do, and to this day, I have no idea why we do this, but we write a letter um, to the person that's passed away and we give them a gift and we place it in their casket. And I don't know why we do it because it's not as if they can read the letter or use the gift, but it's something we do. And so at Papa's funeral, I had a necklace that he had given me when I was younger. It was a very special necklace. And so I put it into the casket. Anyway, we followed on with the proceedings And I was about 15 at the time, and about a month after the funeral, I came home from school and I got into my bedroom, put my school bag down, and I saw something on my bed. And I got closer to my pillow and I saw that it was the necklace that I'd put into Papa's coffin. And I freaked out. I was like, is Papa alive? Did something happen? Like, is he come back from the dead? Why is the necklace that I put in his casket here? And I felt like I was going crazy. And so for the next two days, I was freaking out. I was sort of tiptoeing around the house. And then I finally decided to tell mum my theory that I think possibly somehow mystically that Papa could be alive and in the house. And so as I told mum and how I found the necklace, she said, oh, Rebecca, don't be silly. That necklace was far too expensive to put in the casket. I took it out. I forgot to give it back to you at the future. And so I just put it in your room a few days later. I can assure you that was the last time I put anything in an open casket again. But traditions aside, I think we can all agree that when we go to funerals, we not only celebrate the person's life, but we start to think about the memories that we've shared with them. We start to think about the last interactions we had with that person, the final words that they had spoke. You know, those final words, whether a conversation or a written will, are usually of most importance. 
I remember when my dad fell really sick and last words he said to me right before he went to heaven, it was a, a few of his words. He said, Beck, I want you to carry on with the work of God. At the time, I'd planned to go to India and stay in a shelter for a little bit. And he said, whether I live or die, you must go to India. Rebecca, I want you to listen to this. No matter what happens, no matter what circumstances you face, you are to carry on with the purposes and the plans of God. And those words captured my heart. In that moment, they echoed throughout my entire body. And to this day, they had such an impact on my life. And I wonder tonight if this is how the disciples felt. I wonder as they were sitting on that mountain in Galilee, I wonder as they were looking up at Jesus and they were all crowded around together knowing that these were his final moments on earth before he ascended into heaven. I wonder if they felt something similar. I wonder if his last words captured their heart. I wonder if his final instructions, they knew that that was going to become the mission of their life. You see, we find this moment in the Gospel of Matthew and in many ways, this is the climax of the book. Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. He'd been doing life with them, ministry with them, discipling them. He's then crucified on a cross. He's resurrected from the grave. And now he's giving his final instructions to his disciples of what they are to do before he sends into heaven. This popular passage is known as the Great Commission. But I would submit to you today that although these instructions are given at the end of Matthew, they are part of a bigger story that begins in Genesis and finishes in Revelation. You see, God has been communicating His plan throughout the entire Bible, that His plan is to gather and redeem a people from every tribe, from every language and every nation. This great commission is God's dream for the world. It is His heart and it is why we are here. So if you have your Bibles with me, why don't you come to Matthew chapter 28. We'll start at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. This is why we are here. This is why we get out of bed in the morning. This is what it's all about. It's what our calling is about. And you know, if you're here tonight wondering what your calling is, maybe what you should do with your life, what direction to go, this is it. He has called us. In fact, He has commanded us to make disciples. And I can't help but notice that the church is treating this command like it's an option. As if somehow over the centuries, Jesus' final words, that specific command has somehow become a suggestion. Now, many of you know that I'm married to an ex-military man who is sitting over here and I love him very, very much. But something that I've learned about the military is they have what you call a standing order. And that order is enforced until it is officially cancelled. And so it doesn't matter whether it's been one month or 20 years or 100 years, that order has to carry on until the authority officially cancels it. 
Now, when it comes to this passage, Jesus has all authority. In the Bible, as we read, Jesus has all authority. And as far as I'm aware, in the last 2,000 years, the Great Commission hasn't been cancelled. It is still standing to go and make disciples of all nations. The order, the command to go is still standing. And all through this book, whenever God would commission someone, He would say to them, go. You know, He said to uh, Moses, go. He said to Joshua, go. He said to Noah, go. He said to Abraham, go. He said to Jacob, go. And that's just the first five books of the Bible. You know, according to this passage, the word go is defined as moving from one destination to another. As Christians, we should always be advancing. We should always be moving forward. I mean, we call ourselves followers of Christ. That very act you can't do if you're staying. You have to get up and move. It requires movement. It requires going. And a question I want to ask us tonight is, are we going or are we staying? Are we going or are we staying? Do you know that less than 2% of Christians actually lead someone to Jesus? Less than 2% of Christians. I don't know about you, but that sounds like staying to me. When was the last time you decided to go and share your faith? When was the last time you led someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? James Stewart, a Scottish preacher, once said, The greatest threat to Christianity is not communism, atheism, materialism, or humanism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith, without ever living out the Christian life, without ever becoming involved in the most significant work God is doing on planet earth. Why is it that we stay? Why is it that much of the church would rather say no when God says go? And I believe that it's because we have formed an egocentric theology where we believe that the church exists for ourselves, where it's all about me and my needs and what I can get out of Christianity. And we might be involved in church activity, but it still comes back to me. Are they seeing me? What prophecy am I going to get? What encounter and promise am I going to receive? And a good indicator to know if you have egocentric theology is your prayer life. Are you always praying prayers about yourself and what God can do for you? Or are you praying prayers about other people? You know, when Jackson and I first got married, actually, we still do it. And when Jack and I got married, we decided to set a night of prayer together. And so we decided Monday nights would be that night. And so we do whatever during the week. We have our own individual prayer life. But Monday nights are blocked out in the calendar where we come together and, when we, and we pray. And what I noticed about Jackson when we first started praying together, yes, he prayed for himself, but most of the time he was praying for other people and he was praying for issues and government and all of these things that were going on around the world. And Jack isn't an overly emotional person. I hardly ever see him cry. But when he starts to pray, and he's given me permission to say this, when he starts to pray for people, tears begin to well up in his eyes. Why? Because he realises that we're not here. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for people. And can I tell you tonight, church, 
that we exist for people. We do not exist for ourselves. People are living, breathing human beings. They are created in the image of God. They have destiny and calling and purpose. They have value and they have worth. So much so that Jesus came out of the comfort of heaven and He came to this earth and He went all the way to a cross to free them from their sin so that they could be reunited with their heavenly Father, so that they could receive His presence, so that they would never have to do life on their own, but they could be with God for this life and the life to come. This is the good news of the gospel. But how are people ever going to know if we don't go? And just a little reminder, there is more to being a Christian than just attending church. We are created for purpose, a purpose that goes beyond the four walls of this church. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. You see, salt was used to be a preservative to prevent food from rotting. Now, I'm not much of a cook. Uh, Jack and I tend to use HelloFresh for all our meals these days. But what I do know is this, that when salt is clumped together, it can't serve its purpose. And in the same way, when the church is clumped together, if we only ever gather together and we don't spread out, we're not fulfilling our purpose. We're actually letting an entire world rot and decay around us. Jesus said that we are the light in this world, which means that this world is dark. We don't have to tell people this world is dark. They know it, but we are here to light it up. But if I was to use a torch and turn it on in a light room, that torch would be ineffective, wouldn't it? And if I was to only ever hang around Christians and only ever hang around this building, that would be ineffective, wouldn't it? God has called us to be the salt and the light of this earth. There is a lost and broken world out there. And God has sent you. The Great Commission makes it very clear that Jesus hasn't just saved us, He has sent us. And He has sent us into your world. He has sent us into the schools and the universities. He sent you into your workplace and your family to be a dispenser of love and grace and truth and justice. I think too long we've, we've seen ourselves as a depository where we're just so full of God's power and goodness and we store it all up. But God hasn't created us to be a depository. He's created to us to be a dispenser. Why? Because we have what the church world needs and that is Jesus Christ. There are people in this world that need us. You know, the other day, Jackson and I went um, to spend some time with our friends who aren't Christian. We went over to their house and when we got there, there was another couple already there. My friend said, I'm so sorry, they came over for lunch, they weren't meant to stay this long. And I said, don't worry, it's fine, we'd love to be able to meet them. And the guy, the boyfriend, was this huge tank guy, you know, like tattoos everywhere, rough as guts. And so people were in the kitchen and outside and I was sitting on the couch and he came and sat in front of me. And of course we started talking and he asked me what I do for work. And I said, oh, I work for a church. And then he went silent and he looked at me and he said, oh, yeah, well, what's your story? And I said, my story? And he goes, yeah, why do you work for a church? Why are you a Christian? And I was like, all right. So I sort of shared some of my testimony and how I started reading the Bible and encountered the love of Jesus. And then I said, well, what's your story? And he said, oh, look, I you know, grew up with a dad that called himself a Christian, but yeah, not really into it these days. 
And I said, okay, that's interesting. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just came upon me. You know when he just captures you in a moment and he started speaking through me and I looked at this guy directly in the eyes and I said, you know that God has loved you ever since, um, he's never stopped loving you, that he's still with you, that he's loved you since you were three years old. And I don't know what happened when he was three, but I went on to be speaking about this situation that happened when he was three and then I just and so yeah I basically just shared the gospel with him in a matter of words it was a very short moment but he just went bright red and he put his hand to his face and he looked down and he started shaking and I saw the tears rolling down his face and he just rushed to the bathroom and I sat there being like what was that and they ended up staying for dinner and they asked us all these questions, though, about Christianity. We knew that it was a divine moment. You see, there are people in this world that need to encounter Jesus. They need a touch from heaven. And in the day and age we live in, with society and culture becoming increasingly secular, we cannot afford to stay silent. We cannot afford to stay in these these four walls, we actually have to rise up and be the church. We've got to be the church because there's a lost and broken world out there and it is our responsibility to go. Jesus has chosen to reach all of humanity through us, the church. Just in case you haven't noticed, there is no plan B. There's only plan A and that is us. And unlike any other generation with the quality of travel and the amount of technology we have, I believe there is absolutely nothing, nothing stopping us from fulfilling the Great Commission and reaching everyone on this earth with the gospel. Think about it. Let's just say Adam and Eve were walking around on this earth 10,000 years ago, just conservatively speaking. That means that it has taken us 9,900 years just to invent the aeroplane. 9,900 years just to invent the aeroplane and get us up and moving and flying. Just alone in the last 100 years, we have gone to space. We have sent satellites out into atmospheres. We no longer just have to write letters and wait months and months and months until they are received. We have the iPhone. We have FaceTime. We have storage in a cloud somewhere. I've never seen a cloud, but it's there. We have, technology is advancing. And can I just say, I find it absolutely hilarious when parents try and keep up to date with technology, specifically my mum's. Sorry, mum, I know you were here. But I remember one time I was sitting at my desk upstairs and I had so much work to do. This was a few years ago when the iPhone had just sort of come out and the phone started ringing and I thought, oh, I've got so much work, I'll just call her later. Anyway, the phone stopped and then it started ringing again, but through WhatsApp. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, but I didn't pick up. And then a few moments later, it started ringing through Viber and I was like... Oh my goodness. And she sort of started calling through all these call-ups. And I'm thinking, I think mum thinks these are different phones. I don't think she realises that when you call like through different apps, like that, that's going to the one phone. So I, to, I called her later and I was like, mum, are you aware that if I don't pick up on WhatsApp, I'm not going to pick up on Viber. Like they're just apps. She's a very funny woman. <laughs> and I'm yeah, anyway, I love her. Um, but I, I say all this because human beings today can communicate and travel in a way that is unprecedented. And I believe this is just the beginning. As we're creating technology, 
It enables us to know more. And when we know more, we advance faster. The rate of change is actually increasing rapidly. And to be honest, I don't think that this is a negative. We are living in a time where we are able to reach more people than any other generation. We have new opportunities to share the gospel. We have new opportunities to make a difference in our culture, to make a difference in our society. You know, about 10 years ago, I was driving down Collins Street. And as I was driving, I remember just having this overwhelming feeling, like this urgency to make a difference. And so I started thinking about nursing homes in Melbourne. And I was like, oh, maybe I can go and visit um, the elderly and spend time with them. Some of them might be lonely. And then I started thinking about the young girls and the boys that are being trafficked. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I should go and help out in a shelter or support an organisation. And then I started thinking about the countries that were facing poverty and then people struggling with AIDS and families going through injustices. And I just started to get so overwhelmed. I was like, God, I can't do all of this. And you know what the Holy Spirit said to me? He just whispered and he said, that is why I've called you to make disciples. In that moment, I had a whole new revelation of the Great Commission. I realised that it wasn't just about going and leading people to Jesus. It went beyond that. It was actually about seeing them step into their destiny and calling, seeing the purposes of God at work in their lives so they too can make a difference all around this world. This revelation blew my mind because I think for so long, The church has put making disciples into the category or the box of making converts, where we go and maybe we evangelise to someone, they say a prayer and then we're like, yep, job done on our end. But I don't know if you've had a look at our vision lately, but it says that we're to be raising up a generation in the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that we're to be converting a generation in the power of the Holy Spirit. It says to be raising, to be baptising, to be leading them into a place where they're experiencing the power and presence of God. You know what this tells me? It tells me that making disciples is not a moment, it's a process. The very definition of a disciple is to be a follower a learner. If you think about it, when people get to that point of inviting Jesus into their life, that happens in a moment. But what comes after, the learning, the growing, the developing, that takes time. And we see this in the Old Testament with the Israelites. If you're not familiar with the story, the Israelites were in slavery for 400 years and God appointed a man called Moses to deliver them. But you know what? It took the Israelites one night to get out of Egypt. One night, it took 40 years for Egypt to get out of them. Moses was with them for 40 years, the ups and downs and going around and learning and discovering the ways of God. You see, conversion is a moment, but discipleship is a process. And the most effective way that you will disciple someone, the most effective way that we can disciple someone is through relationship. Jesus gives this example when he chooses 12 people to do life with, aka the disciples, where he gets into their world, he gets involved, he builds relationship with them. In fact, I actually, sorry, I saw a meme the other day that said, um, no one has ever talked about Jesus' miracle of having 12 best friends in his 30s. (laughs) I found that very funny. If you're in your 30s or beyond, you know what I'm talking about. But he got into their world and he built relationship with them. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for people getting involved in my world. And I know that many of us in the room, that is your story too. 
When I was 19, I recommitted my life to follow Jesus. And I remember Bridie and Luke and Ra and Steve and Loretta, all of these people discipled me. They came on the journey and discipled me. I remember going for walks with Bridie asking her all sorts of questions about the Bible and she'd be getting it out and telling me what it means and showing me the commentaries and how to read and apply the Word of God to my life. And can I tell you tonight, the wisdom and revelation that you have, don't be shy to share that because there's actually people in your world that need to hear it. I remember Loretta picking me up from random bars when I had just a little bit too much to drink. And instead of judging me, she actually, just like a parent, um, you know, would pick up the toddler when they fall over. She just loved me. And she showed me a way of life that God was wanting me to have. She showed me love and kindness. You know, I truly believe what Paul says in his letter to the Romans, that kindness leads to repentance. In fact, I think kindness is the most underestimated um, change, like human change agent there is. If you want to see someone change for the better, be kind to them. I remember joining my first life group. It was actually Pastor Steve and Alphine's life group sitting over there. And that was, I don't even know how long ago, maybe nine years ago, but I'd never prayed out loud. And every week you'd give an opportunity for people to pray. And I would just stand in the corner and just be silent until after a few months, one day I just stepped out and I said my first prayer out loud. And I thought it was such a little prayer. I thought I'd conquered the world. And Pastor Steve came over to me and he just said, hey, Beck, do you want to share maybe like a thought from the Bible next week? And I said, yeah, I can try that. And so the next week came and I shared, and I'm telling you, it didn't even make sense. It wasn't even biblical. I mixed up the mustard seed with the fig tree and Jonah. I don't know how I did it, but Pastor Steve was so patient with me and he explained the meaning to the life group. But you know what? He still kept giving me opportunities. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for him. Can you give people opportunities? Even if they stuff up, cheer them on in the process. You know, all of these people intentionally went on the journey and discipled me. They loved me. They taught me. They challenged me. But what stood out most, what impacted me most was the way they lived their life. They were disciples themselves. I saw how they lived. I saw how they demonstrated unity, how they responded to hardship, how they would go out of their way to be generous, how they tithed, how they apologised when they did the wrong thing, how humble they were. I saw how they lived their life. And I learned more from their example than I did from their instruction. And don't get me wrong, instruction is great, but how we live our life is pivotal to making disciples. I read an article the other day um, from Andrew Walmack Ministries, and he was talking about Gandhi. And if you don't know who Gandhi was, he was um, a, someone that, uh, I guess, had a big revolution in India. And he, um, yeah, he basically wasn't a Christian, and he said this quote that said, if it, um, I wouldn't be a Christian if I hadn't, have, I wouldn't, I, okay, I'm going to read it. This is a hard quote. All right. Here it goes. You know what I, uh, oh my goodness, where is this quote? I think that I have things off the top of my head. I would have been a Christian if I hadn't have met one. 
And I thought that that was a little harsh, but I actually found out that when he was in Calcutta, he read the entire New Testament and he actually really loved the way Jesus spoke and what he did. And so he went to the church down the road but the church, to possibly give his life to Jesus, but the church actually wouldn't let him in. They said no, because apparently he was from a lower class. And they said, if you had been white, we might've let you in. These were Christians that were teaching what was in here, but their actions display the exact opposite. And did you know Gandhi actually ended up leading 750 million people to a pagan religion? Can you imagine what would have happened if that church let him in that day? Our actions impact people more than we realise. If the band could join me. But here's the thing. If we're going to make disciples of Jesus, not just converts, but disciples, we need to allow them to get close enough to see how we live. Not just keep them at arm's distance, but actually get close enough for them to see how we live. And I know that's scary because none of us are perfect. But can you imagine if they were actually close enough to see you asking God for forgiveness or close enough to seeing you have the humility of heart to apologise to someone? I mean, that would actually speak volumes about your faith. You need to allow your people to be close enough to you so that they can see how you live. In other words, discipleship is not a church thing. Jesus spent more time with his disciples outside the synagogue than he did inside. Is it just me or was he always on a boat or on some kind of hill? I mean, all the prayers and the miracles and the conversations and the teaching had happened outside the church. And I feel like I'm about to touch on some nerves here. But inviting someone to church doesn't actually take that much commitment at all. Once you get over the fear factor, you invite them to church. They possibly come. If they do, they attend the service. You go and then that's it. But to do life with someone outside the four walls of the church, to spend time with them throughout the week, to love them and follow them up and teach them and do life with them and bring them into your world. I mean, that takes commitment. That takes heart. In fact, I would even go as far to say that that takes a broken heart. Moses could have left the Israelites after they got out of Egypt, but instead he stayed with them for 40 years. He got involved with them. Why? Because his heart broke for the people. Nehemiah could have gone and visited Jerusalem and said, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss about the wall and then gone home, went home. But he didn't. He actually stayed in Jerusalem and he committed to the people and he rebuilt that wall with them. Why? Because his heart broke for the people. I mean, Jeremiah could have given up on Judah. They were so lost in their sin, but instead he didn't run away. He preached the Word of God to every part of that region. Why? Because his heart broke for the people. If our heart would break for people, we would not, we would not be able to run away, but we wouldn't be able to help ourselves, but get involved with their lives. If we would be a generation that allowed our heart to break, I'm telling you, there would be absolutely nothing, not even Satan himself would stop us from fulfilling the Great Commission. And unlike the saints of the Old Testament, we have the Holy Spirit. We have access to the power of God. Jesus Himself said, surely I will be with you until the end of the age. Would you stand with me tonight? I don't know about you, but when I read that Scripture to the very end of the age, that sounds like a long, long way away. But did you know that Jesus could come back any moment? 
Jack actually came home from work the other day and was telling me on the way to work um, while he was on the tram, the tram went round a corner and this huge shadow was cast over the sky in the tram and he saw like, the, it looked like this man standing there like this with his arms outstretched in the sky and for a second Jack was like, this is it. Oh my goodness, Jesus. Jesus, yeah, this is actually it. And he came home and he told me, but he was like, Beck, that's actually how it's going to be. In a moment's time, he's going to be here. And can I ask you tonight, if that moment happened tomorrow, do you have disciples that you were bringing with you? Could you confidently look Jesus in the eye and say that you made his last command, his, your first priority? You see, the hour in which we are living is urgent. There are people in this world that desperately need to know and encounter the transformational love and grace and hope of Jesus Christ. There are people that are seeking and they are searching in every place possible to find purpose and meaning. And we, the church, have the answer. Did you know that if we each discipled one person, I read this the other day, if we each discipled one person for six months and discipled them to reproduce themselves and they went and did just that, did you know that in 16 and a half years that the entire world would be reached for the Gospel? The entire world. This Great Commission is not only God's strategy and plan, it is His dream for this world. Can you imagine what it would look like if we were to see it fulfilled? The lonely would find family, the weak would be strong, the lost would be found, the blind would see, the sick would be healed, the confused would have clarity, the burdened would have light, the afraid would have courage, the fearful would have love, the outcast would be accepted, the foolish would be wise, the anxious would have peace, the brokenhearted would have comfort, the grieving would have joy, the faint would be soaring on wings like eagles, the sinners would be forgiven and made righteous, the sons and daughters would prophesy, they would dream, they would have visions and His Kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are born at this point in history for such a time as this and we have been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're not doing it on your own. You're doing it with me. You're anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I ask you tonight? Can I ask you tonight? Who are you discipling? Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, 
I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.